Welcome to Tech Talk Thursday, Season 3, Episode 6. My guests this week are Michael Ford from Aegis Corporation and Radu Diakonescu from SWE.io in Switzerland. They are both at the forefront of the forthcoming IPC cybersecurity standard, the IPC 1792. And they're here to talk about some of the very real threats affecting the industry and its supply chains. So welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for joining us today. Okay. Nice to see you. So let's get started and uh, uh, tell us a little bit about what are the cybersecurity threats uh, associated with electronics manufacturing and why is, has this suddenly become the focus of attention? Thank you very much, Trevor. Um, so I think the main difference between electronics manufacturing or any other manufacturing uh, operation for that matter and a normal cybersecurity type of, uh, of of activity or yeah cybersecurity protection um, is the fact that in electronics manufacturing um, you're not dealing just with your data so as as a company as an EMS or as a contract manufacturing a contract manufacturer you of course have to protect your data um, but when you're you're producing you're also you also have to protect your customers' data. Um, so there are several emerging risks that range from um, IP theft. Uh, so whenever you're, you're dealing with, with design files, with products that are being manufactured, then you also have to protect your client's IP. Uh, on the other hand, um, I think we've all seen in the past year or even even recently in the past uh, weeks uh, that there are some ways of, of altering products without the knowledge of, of the owner. Um, so this is called uh, supply chain injection. Um, and I think people start realizing that this is more common than, than we previously thought in the sense that there are malicious actors, there are bad actors out there um, that manage to change products, manage to change end products without the knowledge of the manufacturer, without the knowledge of, of the client, and without the knowledge of the user. This can lead to, um, to several problems in the field and several cybersecurity risks once once those products are, are in operation. Right. So when you're saying uh, you, uh, you're calling it a supply chain injection, uh, are you talking about situations like the, the recent Supermicro uh, example that was reported on Bloomberg recently, um, talking about the, the malicious uh, malware, basically, that was injected into, into their... Uh, uh, computers that were being used in government applications in the U.S. That that would be one example, but um, I, I'm sure we're not hearing the full extent of it, and I'm sure there are mm. several other cases that other they're they're either under investigation or we're just mm -hmm. not aware of them. And it can be something as simple as as implanting a chip and sniffing out data. Um, and it can be even more, it, it can get to, to something that is more threatening where 
uh, you kind of have like an active type of, of attack where the, the product not only sniffs data, but is also able to, to behave in a malicious way. Um, right. So think of um, think of all the autonomous cars that we have right now. Think well, not we don't have right now, but we're working to to have. Uh, think of uh, think of all the the other products and think of the possibility of having a product that was designed for one purpose behave in the completely different, opposite different way. way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, Michael. I mean, one of the issues here, of course, is this is not just we're not just talking about industrial equipment and professional equipment. Where uh, one of the biggest issues mm. is with consumer equipment, uh, because a lot of these uh, IoT devices that you've got in your home uh, have got very poor security attached to them. Uh, one one example I heard recently, of course, was the the Roomba. Uh, uh, cleaner that goes around your house. Uh, this engineer in Taiwan bought one and took it apart and found there was some device in there that was going around and every uh, Wi-Fi connected or Bluetooth connected device in his home was it was sucking up the information and sending it to somewhere in China. <laughs> so, I mean, this is what we're up against, though. I mean, uh, and as I say, one of the biggest threats surely is with consumer. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I, I kind of like this kind of smart technology. And I was, uh, you know, going to buy like Wi-Fi switches, you know, to turn lights off remotely and all this other kind of smart tech. But when I looked into buying it, it wasn't just that you controlled it with your internal Wi-Fi in your house. You had to sign up to some web-based service. And to be honest, that isn't really necessary. You've got to wonder how much information is being sent out from our smart devices into these kind of websites uh, overseas and how much that says about you as a person. For example, if um, you get to the evening and you don't see the lights go on, does that mean you're a target for somebody to go around and help themselves to your household contents? You know, the, it reveals a lot about our habits, about who's in the house and what they're doing. And this can be you know, quite useful information for people. But you could also have the scenario where you want to make a cyber attack on a power grid. I mean, do you go for the very high security controllers in the power station? Or do you go and just simply turn everybody's stuff on at the same time and cause a power outage? I mean, we've seen that happen in Dallas um, this week where you just simply overload the power grid and everything shuts off for days. That's an ideal time to start to do nefarious things. So in, in all of these devices, we've got to be so careful because it's not just enough to put a firewall into place. You've got to be aware that at each stage of manufacturing and even in the design, you are beginning to inherit all of the risks associated with that prior stage of the materials and the production. So, yeah, it's true. Even the most modest of devices in your home, the smart home, all the way up to these driverless cars, it all needs to be secured in a much, much better way than it is today. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, we've all identified that there's multiple threats out there. Um, so what can we do about it? Uh, I mean, you, you guys are working on this IPC uh, 1792 uh, cybersecurity standard. Um, what's involved in that and, and, and how do you think this will help to to uh, reduce or, or, or even eradicate this problem? So first of all, I think we need to take a deep breath and realize that this is real and this is mm -hmm. happening. 
Um, so, so IPC is uh, IPC is proactively working and is developing this 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 standard 1792, uh, which is under work, and I think um, I think it's going to be developed. It's going to be published towards the end of this year. Um, and what what this standard tries to establish is essentially it has two pillars, right? So one is uh, sort of a, a cybersecurity label. Uh, for manufacturing facilities, so essentially trying to determine uh, the total value of the data that is being managed by a certain facility and the risks associated with it. So then um, there are going to be se several conditions that, that depending on the data that you are processing, so essentially if you are uh, manufacturing that is, that is using highly sensitive data, then the requirements, the cybersecurity requirements would be more stringent um, and then there's going to be that label put in place that will establish procedures on how to detect so definitions of, of a cybersecurity um, incident uh, how to report it potentially how to how to patch it uh, and and it will provide guidance to to manufacturers on how to increase their their cybersecurity um, levels uh, and cybersecurity protection. And on the other hand, the second pillar would be uh, kind of like a digital certificate that will travel with, with the product along the supply chain, saying that this product has been manufactured in a, in a cybersecure location and um, there wasn't any known incident that affected this, this product. And what is interesting is that we're trying to build uh, the, the feedback loop and the mechanism uh, to say even even post factum to come back and say, look, there was an incident. We found out later that we did in fact have an incident, and that affected certain certain products. And then we're we're kind of like updating uh, that certificate. And this is where also uh, traceability comes into place in order to to be able to pinpoint exactly the products that were affected and and take measure, corrective measures in a timely manner. Right. So, I mean, a lot of this is going to obviously uh, de depend on, on Chinese uh, component manufacturers uh, signing up to this and agreeing to be part of this scheme, uh, which um, I, I assume is going to be driven by the, the big box builders who, who, who buy their product. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, so the, the certificate, just to be clear, uh, works on a, on a blockchain system so that it can't be... Um, um, it can't be tampered with during the uh, at any point along the supply chain. Is that correct? So it it won't be possible to be tampered with. It will be possible for the right people, the people that have the uh, the the knowledge to update it. Right. So it's not it's not tampering. It's it's exactly what I said. Being able to to come back and and update the, that certificate along the way. So if there's a cybersecurity that has affected that product we're flagging that. So it's, it's kind of like a, the product traveling in the supply chain with, with a flag saying, yes, I'm fine. And then if it's not fine, then the flag turns yellow, right? So now we know what product is and then we need to recall it. Yeah, there, there are, I mean, just the mention of the word blockchain makes everybody feel either good or bad, I'm not sure. But people need to understand that blockchain is just one piece of technology that in itself actually does nothing. Because the purpose of blockchain is simply to secure data, to make sure that data is not tampered with. It's got nothing to do with the physical world. 
unless it is tied right. by what they call a crypto anchor. It means just the association of an immutable idea of some form of material or product. And then the record of that is stored securely in the digital world. And that blockchain is making sure the data cannot be changed. And therefore, and if the product itself were changed, like the ID was changed or missing, that it would show up. So, for example, in a traditional world, if you're making a good intrusion into the supply chain, you wouldn't just necessarily change the material. You would have to arrange for <clears throat> the material ID to be changed or a new box or new packaging. There'd be something that would be different there. Um, maybe you'd even have to change the design data. This was the Supermicro case, for example, where the bill of materials was adjusted and the, the design was adjusted such that you had this spy chip on, on the motherboard. So there is a kind of combination now in the modern cyber attacks that it's not just physical and it's not just cyber. It's a combination of the two. And this is where blockchain is so important because it enables you to make sure that the relationship is maintained throughout that chain that Radu was talking about. So this is where we, we kind of see the introduction of uh, quite a few new technologies in the area, which Radu is quite <laughs> an expert at, um, which really are going to change the way in which we approach security. You know, it's no longer the case where you can think that your firewall around your manufacturing site is enough. It's not. Because what about the design data that's coming in? That's an inherited risk. How do you right. know it's the actual design data you want? How can we get that from design into manufacturing? And that's another thing that uh, IPC is looking at. Maybe use the security of CFX to transfer the design data across the network, or at least facilitate it, and then send it even directly down to the machine, as we're, we're seeing a lot of machine vendors use that design data directly. So it's got to be absolutely right. It's got to be secure. And then, of course, you've got the product going out of the factory. Right. But it's not just the product, it's the data going out of the factory. You know, my analytics, my business case, my market, my customers, my supply chain. That's gold in, in terms of value for somebody to understand that information like a competitor. Right. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of different kind of threats, which we want to be able to address within one set of IPC standards that will provide the guidance for people to understand what steps they have to do. We can't tell them the ultimate answer because there are so many cybersecurity companies out there with lots of great technologies. The problem is, which one do I need? How do I use it? And that's where the standards come in to provide that guidance. Yeah, I think, I think the, the, uh, the inertia really has to come from the, the OEMs themselves. They, they have to specify that it has to be, their products need to be manufactured uh, to this IPC standard. Uh, 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 and then the manufacturers have to adopt it and implement it, et cetera. Uh, but I mean, the, the initial um, uh, request has to come from, from the customer, mm. has to come from the OEM. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, it's it's a really it's a really interesting um, uh, area. Uh, so, what what where are you on this journey at the moment? I mean, how far are you down the road in, in, towards actually producing uh, some some standard that, that would address this this issue? Um, <clears throat> there are a couple of different things going on. There's the cyber uh, cyber security standard that uh, a committee was already established some time ago. We're helping out with that, and and as Radu said, that'll come sometime toward the end of the year. Also on the material side, we are looking at component authentication. Um, for example, 
let me just give you a quick use case here. Let's say you got into your car and you want to make sure that everything in that car is sound. Now, the standards are going to tell you about the identifier of all of the key semiconductors. So there is a process that can register the ID of a semiconductor at the time it's manufactured, actually on the wafer. And that unique electronic ID will then survive all the way through its association onto a circuit board and then the circuit board inside a car controller and then ultimately into the car itself. So there is then a way of being able to check that that ID has been preserved, that you can go into this blockchain environment check out all of the associations and be sure that that is the genuine part. That's a simple case. The more complex case is how do we protect the whole car itself? And this is where we use the standards. This is not where we are making the standards. So applications and solutions will come along that will say, right, I've got 20 controllers in this car. I understand that there are certain activities and certain principles that I can start to measure so when you start the car, I can energize circuits. There can be circuits talking to each other. There can be exchange of secure information. We can check the IDs. And that kind of self-security test is generating a digital fingerprint of that car. So that if anybody had come along and changed a chip or altered the software or done anything in any way to create like a backdoor or something like that, that kind of self-test would then indicate, okay, there's a discrepancy here between what I see in the car and what I have on my blockchain storage. So therefore, I, you know, I don't know where the problem came from, but I know that there's a problem and I'm not going to let you get onto that highway. You then start to use the traceability data to find out, okay, what is wrong, why it is wrong, who has the responsibility. So that's the kind of thing. So the development of these applications is a key part. The problem is that until you have standards, everybody's doing this in parallel and everybody's doing it in a different way. It's not interoperable. So we're all paying for the same development over and over and over and over again with every product that we buy. And we don't want to see prices increase for products simply because there are a few bad actors out there who want to take advantage of us. What we really need is a standards-based infrastructure so that we can be clever about making these algorithms and these solutions, these fingerprint generators. And so all of that can be done with very, well, relatively little cost. So we're solving a big problem with a very small cost. Right. And then, and of course, as you mentioned earlier, the, the, the traceability part is, is, is huge, you know, uh, the, the, the aspect of, of that. And the other thing is, of course, if you have one standard, it's a, it's a sort of level playing field. It's not, uh, you know, as you say, all these disparate systems uh, working uh, at different parts of the supply chain, uh, which in, in itself would leave some gaps uh, for people to jump in and, and, and take, a, take a, a advantage of. Um, okay, uh, let's see. What role uh, does emerging technologies, oh, I've already mentioned the, the, the blockchain. Uh, so one of the big issues that uh, is, is um, coming down the pipe, of course, is electric vehicles. Uh, it's going to be a, it's a huge industry uh, and it's growing very, very quickly. Uh, and it's been accelerated by even some governments uh, mandating that all the uh, combustion engines have to be gone by 2030, uh, which is literally just around the corner. Um, so what, what sort of challenges is, 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 is uh, 
you know, electric vehicles themselves going, going, going to, to, to bring uh, in uh, mitigating the cybersecurity risk. Yeah, so as, as Michael said earlier, so we both like also worked on the on the development of the 1782A standard. So we both come also from the traceability point of view. And traceability tells part of the story. Um, uh, traceability tells the, the story that, that, that you need to hear, right? But then there's a lot of, of missing information out there. So in the context of electrical uh, vehicles, electric vehicles, um, I think there's a, there's a very big need to build that product provenance tree. tree. Uh, essentially making sure that at, at each step of assembly there's there, we're not losing information so we have a chip that goes on the board that goes in a mechanical assembly that goes in 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 another sub-assembly somewhere in in a different part of the world then it travels and then it's it's being um, it's being installed in a in an electric vehicle that then travels for a few miles and then that sub-assembly needs to be changed needs to be repaired right so we're putting a different sub-assembly <coughs> now and we need to make sure that 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 tree is then updated so that product provenance tree essentially the link between product ids whenever you have a servicing whenever you have maintenance in in the field we're not losing the data we're not just creating black holes of of data where right. we don't know i mean it, it all looks good for the for the new vehicle but then uh, somebody changes uh, something and then suddenly well we have no idea what's inside yeah. So, 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 so what you're saying is really that there should be a provenance tree for each that goes with, along with the vehicle, uh, so that if you if you change out a, a module for um, a new accelerator module or a new um, uh, you know gearbox module or something like that, uh, that that module or the identif identifier of that module up, is updated in the provenance tree of the car. Uh, vehicle. Um, let, let me just add, I mean, for me, automotive is a very, very critical sector of the industry because nowhere else has the requirement for such high security and high safety and yet is such a competitive area on cost. I mean, we've seen with the recent uh, mm -hmm. issues with semiconductor supply, it was automotive who did not have the kind of commitment on buying power with the semiconductors and they are the ones who ran into trouble first. Yeah. This is indicative of the industry as a right. whole. They don't want to waste cost. You know, they don't want to spend money at all. And it's difficult to understand now that whereas the car used to just have a couple of electronic systems, the electronic vehicle, you know, a lot of the electronics in there is simply there to protect the battery to make sure that you know all the conditions are, are, are good for charging and discharging and use, etc. It's now more safety critical than it's ever been. It's just... In it's still a relatively new area for them. I mean, because, you know, let's remember, I mean, it used to be that the, the automotive industry was always the slowest adopter of, of new electronic technology yeah. for many, many years. Uh, and then suddenly, you know, in the last 10 years, have accelerated at a heck of a rate. Um, and... These guys are used to building uh, cars using heavy engineering for, you know, combustion engines, that sort of thing. Um, they're now building electric cars. Uh, so they're becoming a, an, an, an EMS company, you know, in many ways, a big EMS company, of course. But, but um, you know, they're assembling electronics. 
uh, and it's a different ball game. You know, it's uh, different, uh, different uh, skills required, different um, uh, oh, standards different technologies completely. Uh, I mean, you look at the old existing, you know, existing for many, many years car manufacturing environment. And then you look at the new entrants into the market. I mean, there are so many new companies now making electric cars. I mean, Tesla is the kind of headline act, uh, as it were. But these are new companies and they're not following right. old rules. And this is really good to see because the rules need to be, the old rules need to be thrown away if you're going to keep pace mm -hmm. with the way technology is going. And so I think in electronics manufacturing right. per se, there's a, we've dealt with this complexity and we're addressing the issues. We are actually, I feel in control. I mean, I'd like to be a little faster, but okay, we're in control. But within automotive, I think they're going to be caught off guard. And unless they really start to look at more modern solutions and modern technologies and, and you understand that they're going to have to change their paradigm for how manufacturing works, they're going to be in real trouble. And real trouble means that the new companies coming in are going to take advantage and really have a much better business case and a safety record digitally. <laughs> and therefore, there's a challenge to their business. So I, I would really encourage yeah. that people do look at the automotive sector and you know we don't want it to be as you said you know the ones who are adopting things last i would like to see them in the lead but they need to have some kind of push yes. to do that and i and i hope that that push comes soon uh, and one other area of um, security uh from around manufacturing is of course in the in the military sphere and over in the united states recently they introduced the cmmc regulations uh, they're very stringent. Uh, they're designed essentially around this problem that we're discussing today. Um, but they, they involve, uh, you know, manufacturing companies to be qualified with an auditor li literally visiting the, the factory and doing an extensive audit of all uh, digital equipment in there to make sure that it, it's it's not uh, it doesn't have any hasn't been infiltrated. It, it's it's sound, etc. You know, our, that's probably taking it to one extreme. Uh, uh, but using your digital certification that you're talking about, is that going to be sufficient uh, to try and, 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 and keep out these bad actors? Look, I, I think nothing is sufficient overall. I think that, that if, if we try as an industry to get to a point where we say, yeah, okay, now it's sufficient, I've done everything. I can I can rest for two years. Then that that's part of the problem. So it's always a race. So it's 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 always trying to be ahead of the game. It's always trying to be proactive and finding finding new ways. What what those digital certificates do uh, very well is they align the incentives. It's something that we've been talking about also in the traceability uh, part of it. Um, we need to make sure that incentives are aligned you know, across the supply chain and we need to make sure that those bad actors um, have less of a financial incentive to do to, to supply chain injection or to do anything else and then on the other hand it's easier to discover them and we have a procedure to like when, whenever there's something discovered we can pinpoint we can find out what has happened and we can trace it back to, to to the origin of the of the supply chain attack, but I think having uh, there's always going to be a risk. It's not going to. It's never going to be zero percent risk, and people need to be aware of that. Yeah.
I think it's going to be like it's going to be a bit like paying your taxes. You know, you, you, if, you, if you've got a if you've got a if you've got a lot of money, you know, you've got a very expensive accountant there that's finding all the loopholes in the tax code. Uh, and the government brings out new tax codes, and he finds ways around them. Uh, it's going to be the same in the security business. There's going to be always somebody trying to find yeah, their the way thing around. Is with this CMMC. It, it's purely for uh, U.S. defense, and um, and therefore, why should people be bothered? But I think that due to the stories that we've seen, going back to the Supermicro case, etc., people are wanting to have guidance on what they need to, to do. And so this kind of check is really going to become necessary and widespread. People are already looking at applying CMMC in other areas. This is a nightmare for manufacturing because right. they have no clue today of how to go about this. And you end up in a scenario, it's just like when the initial you know, uh, quality and conformance standards came out. You start writing checks to get a signature and a tick in the box uh, for some kind of you know, passing some kind of audit. But the real answer has to be a systemic approach where we control the security at all stages of the supply chain and we know that we're doing thing, things in conformance so that we don't have additional cost we don't have additional risk but we do know that we're satisfying the needs for the secure environment and so this is where we need to again helped by the standards but be able to have the understanding of exactly what is necessary what is not necessary we don't want to waste money on solutions which are needless but we also need to be sure that we can you know, counter the key risks and elements that we see and progressively go forward from there. So it may be at different levels, as Radu said. There is always going to be some kind of doubt somewhere. But you start at level one, for example, basic kind of security and understanding that all, everything is secure. But then you go up level two, level three, level four, until you know, you're getting to a state where you're absolutely paranoid about it and nothing can go wrong. But throughout all of that, there needs to be an infrastructure. There needs to be a, an easy way of doing things that does not require immense investment in you know, consultants coming in and having to check everything over and over again every single time, because that is not the way to go forward in the industry. Right. Well, you see, you know, on, on the one side of um, standards and, and uh, things like that, you, you have um, uh, you, you have to get we have to edit this bit out. But um, on the one hand, you've got standards, but on the other hand, you, you have uh, implementation of these standards. And, and uh, as we found out in the European Union, uh, there's all different ways of implementing uh, rules, regulations and standards. Uh, which are generally, in the case of the European Union, uh, administered by the member country. And each member country can have a different level of, of um, implementation, as it were. Uh, looking at the electronics global supply chain, there's a lot of talk at the moment about uh, splitting that up uh, and having, uh, you know, there's a big drive in Washington uh, for revenue to, to to help build more fabs in in, in uh, the United States, uh, I think there should be the same going on here in in, in Europe. Uh, and we know that uh, obviously that, that China is trying to put a lot of pressure on Taiwan, primarily because of TSMC and other things. So uh, all of this is going to to to, to change the dynamic as well. Uh, if if you start getting uh, more of the 
the actual raw materials and components coming from each regional area, you know, like uh, fabs in, in Europe or fabs in, in the United States again. Now, what's your view that's, on that? That's the, the real issue here is that everything is international and everything is global. You know, just taking a car, for example, you yeah. know, it's not one car factory. You have the end assembly in one point. You have in, in numerous different subcontractors everywhere around the world. Where are the batteries made? Where are the chemicals coming from? Those different elements are being put together. It's a truly global operation. So how are we supposed to be able to have a clear path of visibility if the rules and regulations are different in each country? Are we supposed to take the highest common standard and say, well, okay, if the target country requires this, therefore we need to require that in the source country? Or is it the source country rules that win and say, well, look, this has been manufactured according to our rules, therefore you can use it wherever you like. There's going to be a lot of argument about that. And so the discussions that we need to have must not be on a company to company proprietary basis. We've seen already certain companies working with other companies to achieve something which is admirable. But we need to talk about the industry as a whole. And that is truly an international issue. So we need to make that very, very clear that we start with some kind of understanding. Maybe it's created through the use of standards. And that just gets us 5%, 10% of the way there. We then need to look at solutions that are made by each of these different areas of supply chain, component manufacture, assembly, and into the market itself. There is a huge amount of work to be done there. And everybody needs to be working together because we need this through transparency throughout the whole thing. And so we're not talking about something that's insignificant here and we can turn around in six months or a year. This is something where we all need to work together across the whole world over the next three to five years and hope that nothing bad happens in that time. You know, hope that we can get to an answer before we get to a real serious problem. Yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're actually quite, quite fortunate because uh, the, the era in which we, we live in, pandemics aside, um, is, is one of great technological investments. So now we have and and every year there's like new technology coming in that that can help us solve uh, solve several issues and i think one of the like when we're talking about the, the global supply chain what we're trying to do is we're trying kind of like to switch the perspective and and um and focus on on the product so yes there are several standards that operate in different countries but what if we could we could assign to to each product, each individual product, we could assign proofs that it was manufactured in a certain location, it was manufactured in a certain way, make sure that that data is, is private, but we can verify some claims. So we can say that whenever there's a product that is coming to me, and I'm interested that it's, it's manufactured according to the standard that I communicated to, uh, to the manufacturer, then I can verify this. And I can verify this two tiers um, uh, two tiers back as well. Like I sell this to my client, and my client sells this to the to the to the OEM. They can they can verify that things. They could potentially verify that things happened as as they they intended. Geography aside, uh, if if we want, if we have some some trade restrictions, or if we have some manufacturing locations that are preferred, then we can use those. And but I think that that that. 
yeah, as I said earlier, we're fortunate enough to, to live in this, this era of technological advancement and we're fortunate enough to live in a, in a truly global supply chain. And I think this is, this is truly for the, for, for the best. We just, need to, we, need, we just need to manage it properly. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it's a, it's a fascinating debate, guys, and it's it's a huge area. And this is this is uh, it's not going to be solved overnight. But uh, I, I have to say, the work that you you're both doing on this is fantastic and uh, very much needed. Uh, so I want to thank you both for coming in and telling us all about it today. Okay. Thank you very much indeed for having us.